Bonus So Money episode with Liz Ann Saunders, Chief Investment Strategist with Charles Schwab. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everyone. This is a special bonus episode kicking off our series of topical shows in partnership with Charles Schwab. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Every other Thursday over the next two months, So Money and Schwab are teaming up to bring you rich conversations and advice around key topics from investing wisely to retirement planning and teaching our kids about money. As many of you know, I'm working with Charles Schwab to help spread financial literacy to the masses, and it's been a really great collaboration so far. I'm a Charles Schwab customer and have been for many years. So before we get started, I just want to thank Charles Schwab for helping get this financial education content to you. All right. So today we invite Lizanne Saunders. She's the Chief Investment Strategist with Charles Schwab. She's been named one of Smart Money's Power 30, which is their list of the most influential people on Wall Street. Also been named the best strategist of the year by Kiplinger's. And most recently, Lizanne was named to the IA25 by Investment Advisor. And that's their list of the 25 most important people in and around the financial advisory profession, period. So then who best to share her perspectives on today's financial markets. Lizanne also will talk about how novice investors can best get started, even if they don't have a lot of money, even if they're worried about where stocks are headed, and so much more. Very excited for this episode. Here we go. Here is Lizanne Saunders. Lizanne Saunders, welcome to So Money. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. I have to tell you, Lizanne, you're definitely someone that I and my colleagues deeply respect, being someone who has worked in the personal finance space for the better part of 10 years. We really look to you for guidance on topics like investing in the stock market, economic trends, especially today, you know, when there's so much uncertainty. Well, thank you. Yeah, really excited to share your wisdom and perspectives on the market and the economy. But first, Lizanne, let's talk about your background. I read that your entry into the world of finance was sort of a fluke. Correct. <laughs> so tell us about how you landed in this space. I know I understand you were eventually drawn to Wall Street, but it wasn't always the idea, right? That is that is correct. In fact, um, although I had as a component of my major economics, uh, it, it was I, I didn't have a uh, a mindset of having a beeline for for Wall Street. Frankly, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I got out of undergraduate school. I thought about going to graduate school for political science, but then I realized I didn't know what I wanted to do with that either. So I decided to just pound the pavement in New York City. I always knew that I wanted to live in New York City and work in New York City, but I didn't limit the, the job search to just Wall Street companies. I, I hooked up with a, a headhunter that specialized in um, entry-level folks, but you know, coming out of, of graduate school or undergraduate school with real degrees. And 
I interviewed with every variety of, uh, of company in terms of industry, uh, ad agencies, marketing firms, a couple of Wall Street firms, and just had this interview one day with a, a company um, called Avatar Associates, which was part of the Zweig Avatar uh, group, did a little research in advance and in the aftermath of that interview and, and learned a lot more about Marty Zweig, who at the time was just an icon and a pioneer in the business. But more important than that, I just felt the connection with the, the people, not really knowing what the job would entail or much about the industry. I just, my gut just said, this is the right place. And I was fortunate that it was a a firm that very much believed in promoting from within and, and, and growth and, and educational nurturing. And they also paid for hundred percent of graduate school, which I, I did at night. And it was really just by virtue of working there, learning the business from the ground up, that I I fell in love with it. And even through that process, though, I realized that what I really loved was the macro top-down analysis, and in particular, understanding the psyche of investors, the the sentiment side of things, which I learned a lot of that from, from Marty, who was a pioneer in many of those uh, areas. So it also helped me figure out what would ultimately be the the sort of second major chapter in my career going from buy side portfolio management to this top down uh, macro uh, analysis, which I adore. I really appreciate that story, you know, arriving to the job front, not having a particular focus on the kind of job that you want. I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to sort of find this like perfect job, dream job, job that checks off all the boxes. But what I'm hearing from you is that you were able to identify at least a few important attributes, which was that it was a healthy workplace, great people, a lot of growth for opportunities and learning. That's a great lesson. And, and not only that, one of the ways I think about it is that at least in my case, and this isn't for everybody, my career found me more so than the other way around. Um, again, I, I didn't have this preconceived notion of what I wanted to do, and then I searched that out. I, I went on gut instinct on the basics of, of you know feel that I got from this company, and lo and behold, what turned into my career found me courtesy of that first kind of step into the unknown that I took. Would love to talk a little bit about your first boss, Marty Zwag, whom you mentioned, you know, Wall Street icon and famously predicted the 1987 crash. He sure did. (laughs) Do you think that you inherited some of his prediction capabilities from working with him and his team? What now do you see are definitive telltale signs of a crash? So I, I, I would never put myself on anywhere near the same uh, level as, as Marty. I will be forever grateful uh, for what he, he taught me. Um, he passed away a few years ago, um, very untimely, but he, uh, he just had an incredible knack that combined basic quantitative analysis, understanding the way markets work, the indicators that are important, the trends and forces that ultimately drive markets, figuring out how to pinpoint some of the the, the signs that you're getting to an inflection point in, in one direction or another, either at the top or the bottom. But I would say what probably provided the success he had more than any other area was understanding investor sentiment, understanding the behavioral side uh, of investing and, and really figuring out how to 
nail that, particularly at extremes. And I, I will say that uh, although I wouldn't consider myself a market timing timer by any stretch, um, largely because we don't think it makes a lot of sense for investors to do at Schwab, we, we don't make bombastic forecasts. We, we are much more focused on sort of long-term discipline. That said, some of the best for lack of a better word, calls um, that I have made or views about the market that I have had uh, to big extremes, but but notable ones would be the end of 07 and then right around March of 2009. I have to say that the gut instinct that in in about September of 07 said to me, boy, that this is this is literally and figuratively a house of cards. I think a lot of that was a, a judgment about investor sentiment, not just looking at, at, at housing-related debt data and, and starting to get a sense that that was not going to end well and the leverage associated with that, but this kind of gut instinct that there were too many investors sort of whistling past the graveyard of, of problems in, in, the, in the debt markets and, and housing. And uh, that gave me sort of comfort in coming out in the fall of 07 saying, you know, a recession's probably coming and, and this is going to be pretty, uh, pretty ugly. And then really in, in March of 2009, I had one of these aha moments that I, again, will think back to the way Marty used to talk about investor sentiment and behavior and, and especially at extremes. And, you know, the opposite of, of periods like 07 or 2000, the despair that uh, we saw in 2009, particularly that month, was really uh, unlike anything in what what is my now 32 years in the business um, I had ever uh, seen. And for me, the the moment was the weekend before the bottom, the March 9th bottom in 2009. I live in Darien, Connecticut, which had the lovely distinction in 2008 of being named the town in the country most affected by the financial crisis. So I'm surrounded by uh, Wall Street people, all things financial services. And my husband and I were at a dinner party the weekend before. And at the end of the night, we got into a conversation about the market. And the host, who had a 35-year career in Wall Street, said to me, Lizanne, I don't, I don't envy your situation. I said, well, um, I'm not sure what you mean. He said, I, I don't think, first of all, I don't think the, the major indexes are ever going to reach their, their former highs ever again. I think we will never attract retail investors back into the market, which makes me worry about the sustainability of a Charles Schwab. And I don't remember exactly what I said or did. I, I probably had a half smile on my face. Half hour later or so, we leave. My husband turned to me in the car and said, did you hear it? And I knew exactly what he meant. I said, you mean the bell? He said, I knew you were thinking that. As soon as, and I won't say his name, as soon as our friend said those things, I looked at your face and you had that look like, hmm, wow, okay, this is what bottoms feel like. And the next week I wrote a, a report uh, titled um, Here Comes the Sun. And uh, But that was almost purely uh, a feeling that, okay, it, this is as bad as it gets. When sort of the last man who should know better standing is no longer standing, we've probably seen the worst of things. And, and the whole notion of focusing on markets that way versus just looking at earnings and valuations and other economic fundamentals, um, I, I think people who don't focus on that or, or understand the mechanics of that 
um, probably don't have as much success in figuring out market moves as uh, relative to those that just look at fundamentals. There's that saying that we've hit a the, the peak when people like your cab driver is talking about investing in, say, Bitcoin or the real or real estate. Absolutely. Bottom is when someone with 35 years of experience in finance is like, I don't know if we're ever going to bounce back. <laughs> Exactly. And I, in fact, I have a, an interesting uh, chart that I show when I do client presentations. It just has a, a chart of the S&P 500 and it, it highlights the major peak in March of 2000, kind of the epic peak. Um, and then the, of course, epic bottom in March of 2009. And what I, what I put in a, an accompaniment to that are what the economic and earnings statistics look like at, at that peak in 2000 and the bottom in 2009. And maybe no surprise to somebody who understands the relationship between fundamentals and the market, and what we certainly know in hindsight, is that the economic data, the earnings data, was off the charts in 2000, right at the market peak. That's not abnormal. Conversely, in March of 2009, the economic data was as ugly as it's ever been, save for the Great Depression. With the benefit of hindsight, we know that was right at the bottom. Not uncommon for that to be the case. The market has an amazing ability to find the inflection point, and it, which is why I have always said that when it comes to the relationship between economic fundamentals and the stock market, better or worse matters more than good or bad. And that's what I think investors miss more than anything. They tend to be focused on the level of the data. Boy, you know, unemployment rate is low and GDP growth is strong and consumer confidence is high and earnings are on fire. Why in the world would you be worried? Well, the data is almost always at or near its peak when the market rolls over because the market figures out it doesn't get any better from here. It's going to start to get worse. And that tends to be the market's launch point or vice versa, of course, when you're at the bottom. And I think it's one of the biggest mistakes that investors make is not understanding kind of trend versus level. And one of the phrases Marty coined was the trend is your friend, but he was also very keen on understanding at what point the trend is starting to reverse. Right. And having that context is really important to know whether something is actually a positive or negative given the historical context and the relativity of it all. You know, I'd love to talk more about the markets. Listeners are, you know, really their ears are perking up waiting for your predictions. But before we get to that, I want to talk to you about your role as a woman in finance. You know, it's something that you have definitely talked about being an asset to you as you have uh, climbed through the ranks in the world of Wall Street. But also, I'm, I'm wondering if it ever has actually been a handicap or a challenge. Yeah, so I, I, I love that question. I like that you asked it with, with kind of multiple uh, facets. And um, probably by having some knowledge of my background, and if anyone has ever read an interview with me or see me do an interview and that question has come up, most people know that I have always said, I think being a woman in this particular male dominated industry of, of Wall Street, you know, however you want to define it, but I, I'll use it as the generic description, I think has been a huge positive. Now, that's not the case for everybody, but I was very fortunate to start at a firm that was pretty diverse gender wise. And my direct boss when I joined Zweig Avatar was a woman. And she went on maternity leave a few months, maybe six months or so after I started. 
So I, I got to take over some of her responsibilities pretty quickly. And clearly it was a firm that, that did not have any kind of gender bias. And I think being a, a, a woman um, it automatically sets you apart um, simply by virtue of your, your gender. Now that can sometimes work in your favor or to your disadvantage, but I think uh, you know, unless you open your mouth and, and say something ridiculous or fall flat on your face, I think it's a it's a differentiator relative to the, quote, you know, middle aged white guy that that is sort of seen as dominating Wall Street. That said, I although I have not faced in my career anything extreme in terms of, of discrimination or abuse of any kind. And I feel very fortunate, especially in this day and age and, and the acknowledgement of, of how pervasive it is in so many industries. But, you know, there have been times where more blatantly there has been gender discrimination and kind of a fun one that really was a turning point for me in my career occurred in uh, 1997. Um, Marty Zweig decided he was moving away from the day-to-day managing of the asset allocation model and managing the money on a day-to-day basis um, to go off and do some other things and, and, and be sort of bigger picture. And that was a big deal for my side of the business, the institutional side of the business, because many of the big foundations and endowments and corporate pension plans had come in because he was at the helm of the model. So we hired a PR agency to help us work through the communication process around Marty kind of taking a step back. And as part of the strategy, the the gentleman from the PR agency that was sort of our point person suggested that because Marty had had such media presence and had been on Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser since the early 1970s and was very well known in the conference circuit, that our side should consider you know, finding someone or maybe a couple of the key people to be put out there a little bit more, um, get on TV, get on the, the, the sort of conference circuit. So a very close friend of mine who was our head of marketing at the time suggested me. And I don't remember, I wasn't privy to the conversation. I've just heard about it after the fact. Um, he basically said, I think her her gender will mean she will not have the credibility um, as maybe somebody else. So he he kind of chose a colleague of mine who was younger, newer, less experienced, but male. And kudos to my friend who wouldn't take no for an answer and just said, uh uh-uh. uh you're going to do this and you can you can still kind of promote the, this colleague of Lizanne's. But um, you are going to uh, work with her and you are going to do whatever you think is appropriate. Get her on CNBC, whatever it is, get her a speaking spot at a conference. And that happened. I had one CNBC appearance. Um, I was a nervous wreck, but I think I did okay. And the next day I got a call from the producer of Wall Street Week with Louis Schuchheiser, which is, you know, this iconic show. It's a shame to me that young people don't have any knowledge of that show because he the show ended, he passed away. Um, but that was the thing. And I thought it was somebody playing a joke on me. But lo and behold, I went on as a guest. I became a regular panelist. And and that really started the media side of of my career by a male friend of mine basically saying, No, oh no, you don't. <laughs> um you, you you will you will promote, so to speak, um her. And 
but really that's the only the only time I I, I face that. Uh, so I, I do feel very lucky that that's what it's been limited to. You know, in some ways, yes, definitely luck had a lot to do with it. I can see that. But certainly, too, you also identified that working at Zweig was a supportive environment. You kind of called that out. You had that intuition when you first got there. Um, You know, speaking of intuition, you've credited your female intuition for influencing your views on things. Can you share more about that? Sure. Well, you know, as, as I mentioned, as it related to the March 2009 bottom, that was as much about intuition, gut feel as anything else. I mean, there was nothing unique about my analysis of the data relative to anybody else's analysis of, of the data. I think collectively people knew that market had gotten cheap um, based on standard valuation measures, that we probably had gone through the worst of the pain of deleveraging. Not that there were any concrete signs that things were about to lift, but I think people would have conceded that at that point, it probably doesn't get worse from here. But for me, it was just that that gut instinct, that little voice, uh, that bell ringing in my head that said, boy, this is, this is what bottoms um, feel like. And uh, I, I, it's fairly rare for me to kind of come out with a forceful view on the market because I think other than at extremes, the market is pretty nuanced and it's, it isn't always black and white and investors shouldn't take an all or nothing approach to investing. Um, but that was just one of those uh, moments. Now, whether I would have had that same intuition if it was a male, who knows? But uh, so I, I don't want to say only because I'm a female and have maybe a different kind of intuitive sense that that's the, the, what gave me that confidence. But it just is, is what I felt at the time, that, that gut instinct drove uh, my call on the market to a much greater degree than any of the fundamentals. What is your take on the market today? If you had to make some, for lack of a better word, predictions or thoughtful analysis for us as we head into the fall, maybe into 2019, you know, our audience is not the type where they're looking into their portfolios, making money moves every day. That's not even a good way to manage your money. But, <laughs> but we are curious about how things may shape out. How, what do you think? We, um, we put together a collective 2018 outlook at the end of the year, as we always do. And it was a, a collection of thoughts from myself and the other so-called subject matter experts. So my colleague who's on the fixed income side and another colleague who's on the non-U.S. side and sector folks and within fixed income, you know, the credit side and the mortgage side. So it was a, a collection of thoughts. And there isn't necessarily always an overriding theme. Um, We do a beginning of year outlook and then we do an update mid-year. And sometimes the views are somewhat disparate or they're very specific to the asset class or classes that they cover. But coming into this year was a year where we found we were all very much on the same page with this notion that it is getting late. And what we were referring to was uh, where we are in the economic cycle. But I I would caveat that by saying that I think we are much later in calendar terms than we are in character terms, or maybe put another way, we're late in time, but not yet in temperature. So it's the second longest economic expansion in history. I think it will ultimately get to be the longest one. Um, But because of how mild the recovery and in turn expansion has been in terms of overall growth, 
I think we still have some runway ahead of us. And the reason why I say that is nobody loves a subpar expansion, which this one clearly has been with only about, you know, 2% or so average growth. So it's been a, it's been a, a middling at best expansion. But if there's one benefit to that is that we haven't built much yet of the excess that tends to get so extreme that that causes monetary policy to have to get tighter and it kind of tips you into the next recession. We haven't built a lot of that uh, excess. However, I think we're at a stage in the game now where we want to start to pay attention to the things that are likely to turn, some of the heads-up indicators, as I call them, not least being the index of leading indicators, which is an easy-to-track index of 10 uh, sub-indicators usually does a pretty good job of giving you a heads up of of potential uh, trouble. Things like the yield curve, I still think we have some runway ahead of us, but um, messages that that sends into the the marketplace, looking at financial conditions, which have gotten tighter. And what's been unique about this cycle is the Fed started raising interest rates two and a half years ago, but only a few months ago did financial conditions actually start to tighten. So they they were raising rates, but financial conditions were getting looser. Now they're continuing to raise rates and financial conditions are getting tighter. And that has implications for the market. So the the net is, I think you have to be on guard right now, certainly be a bit more cautious. Um, That doesn't mean we're, we're facing impending doom for either the market or the economy, but we have to start to keep, you know, a a mental or actual uh, checklist of some of those signs that, again, to go to the point that I made earlier, that we're at the point of it doesn't get better from here. Because, again, the market tends to sniff out those inflection points. And at, at you know, moments of peak euphoria, whether it's around the economic fundamentals or because of what the stock market has done, that alone sends up a, a, a warning flag for me. I don't think we're quite there yet, but but we, we have to start to watch for that. And last thing I'd say is I think the biggest risk right now that really could kind of turn things ugly quickly is if we continue to see or see an even bigger escalation in the trade battle happening right now. I think that's a significant risk, not just to the U.S. economy and market, but globally as well. Is there a situation where you would say, you know what, this nine-year bull market could go for another five years because, you know, the indicators are now in a different place. Um, What would have to kind of change? What direction in order for things for for you to be more optimistic? Well, I I think the trajectory of earnings growth would have to stay uh, fairly robust. Um, I think the, the likelihood of it staying as robust as it has been and probably will continue to be this year is simply limited because of math. You know, we got the huge fiscal stimulus and in particular tax reform caused a massive, massive surge in earnings growth. So in November last year, a month before tax reform passed, consensus expectations for 2018 earnings growth was about 10%. And then that immediately jumped to about 20% when tax reform passed. Then we had first quarter reported reporting season and we hit 27%. Second quarter is kind of going gangbusters, not quite at that level, but you know, between 20 and 25%. The problem is that that doesn't 
keep recurring. You know, the, the math is such that the year-over-year comparisons get tougher when you have a tax cut-related surge this year. So no matter how great things are, you're going to head into the remainder of this year and into 2019, the comparisons get tougher, the earnings growth rate goes down. What I think would have to happen would be a collection of things. For some reason, earnings growth stays incredibly robust. You get a capital spending cycle. You get a resolution, however one defines that, to this tariff situation, and you see global trade pick back up again. If you could get all of that and also not have inflation start to run away, um, inflation stay contained, allowing the Fed to maybe step back a little bit uh, from their their tightening policy, that would be, I think, the recipe for a, an extended continuation of this bull market. The likelihood of getting all of that wrapped in a, a lovely bow, I think, is maybe not nothing, but but fairly low. Conversely, though, I, I don't see much serious excess. I don't see serious bubbles. Uh, I've talked and written a lot about micro bubbles. I think we had a micro bubble in short volatility, which imploded spectacularly in February. I think the cryptocurrencies to some degree were kind of a little bit of a micro bubble, but I don't see anything like the housing bubble or the you know tech stock bubble from 2000 that's going to take the entire system down with it. I think this next cycle, whenever it comes, will be a more traditional bear market that comes when the market is sniffing out that we're going into a recession. Um, those tend to be less severe bear markets and shorter lived bear markets. So barring a, a, a true black swan um, or a, a real escalation into, you know, all out trade wars, you know, circa 1930s Smoot-Hawley kind of stuff. Um, I, I think this next bear market will be the more traditional variety. But the trade stuff does give me a little cause for concern because that that really is where the where the the numbers, the data, and the psychology could get ugly pretty quickly. And I, clearly, I hope we don't go down that route. Yeah, and it kind of makes you want to write like a an article about kind of breaking it down for the layman, because I think there's a lot of sort of high level chatter about it, and it's definitely in the news. And I think we could do a better job as journalists of kind of breaking it down. And, and- I could not agree with you uh, more. And it. But I do think it's going to be easier to understand this, um, and it's starting to be the case already for for journalists, for investors, because the tariffs have kicked in, some of them. So now it's starting to get real. And you are seeing, whether it's Harley-Davidson or BMW, companies react to this, make announcements of, of things they actually have to change as a result of this. And I've heard people say, well... You know, why wouldn't why wouldn't these companies just understand that this is just a negotiating tactic? This is art of the deal. Well, they have constituents and their constituents are their employees, their shareholders, um, their profit margins, if you want to call that a constituent. And they have to make decisions in the here and now. The CEO of a company can't say, I still think that this is an opening salvo and a negotiating tactic. And a year from now, we're going to look back and say, That was a dust up, but everything's hunky dory now. They have to make decisions in the here and now. And in turn, people, towns, cities that are affected on the negative end of things um, start to make those frustrations uh, known. The first order effects of where we are now in the trade war, just simply doing the math of tariffs divided by tariffs multiplied by the value of the goods divided into GDP, it's a very small hit to the U.S. economy, even to the Chinese economy. What I'm more concerned about are the second order effects. So what does this do to the kind of business confidence 
uh, readings that have been unbelievable for the last couple of years? What does it do to animal spirits that have really kind of kicked in? And that's what I think is harder to, to estimate, but is not getting the attention that it deserves by people who just say, you know what, just do the math. The fiscal stimulus greatly outweighs the dollar amount of these tariffs, but the second order effects already need to be considered. And then if these really, really escalate and the retaliation goes beyond just tariffs, uh, you know, China is now kind of playing around with their currency. There are other things that other nations can do to kind of combat this. And we obviously have no control over that. So that that's sort of the worst case scenario. But one, I think you have to consider uh, as, as we look ahead. We have a lot of listeners who are just starting to invest for the first time. And they're concerned, I think, because, you know, they're thinking if I put money in the stock market today, the outlook in five years doesn't look so hot, so I could lose that money. What is the prescription for novice investors who, let's say, have access to a 401k at work or want to start a basic portfolio? So the, the, it's a great question. Uh, the message uh, I'm going to uh, share is is not all that different than one I would share at any point in the in the cycle. Um, too many investors think of investing as about a moment in time. Um, in fact, one of the most common questions or version of a question I get from the financial media is, "Are you telling investors to get in or get out?" as if investing was this moment in time thing where you just have to make an all or nothing decision. Investing certainly now, but should always be a process over time, never ever about a moment in time. So, uh, you know, so we, we consistently espouse taking a disciplined approach, make sure you have a plan, start with a plan, figure out who you are as an investor, what your, what your risk tolerance is most importantly, what your income needs are um, related to risk tolerance is not just time horizon because there are investors that have an incredibly long time horizon that are going to freak out at the first 5% drop in their portfolio. I don't care if you're not going to retire for 40 more years. If you're going to freak out at the first 5% drop in your portfolio, you are not a risk tolerant investor. So understanding truly who you are, don't just base it on uh, age. Um, is incredibly important. What are your income needs? Uh, all of those things. Um, put together a plan and then be unbelievably disciplined around that plan, which involves everything from taking a dollar cost averaging approach where you're not saying, boy, I have to figure out the day that it's best to start investing or put my money in the market. But make it a process over time. Use rebalancing to your favor. That is an unbelievably valuable tool that I don't think gets the attention it deserves. Because we all know we're all educated to understand the obvious, which is in you know in a perfect world you buy low and you sell high. Unfortunately, with our own money, we often do the exact opposite. We get incredibly enthusiastic when the market is doing well. As a result, your exposure to equities goes up and up and up, and you just continue to let it ride. And then, not until the inevitable downturn comes, then you panic and you get out and you do the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do. Investors end up doing a lot of buying high and a lot of selling low. Rebalancing lets your portfolio tell you when it's time to do something. You don't have to worry about which, you know, Yahoo on CNBC or on your podcast is going to have the right market call. It's money in motion on a consistent basis and through discipline and dollar cost averaging and rebalancing, more often than not, you're going to kind of be on the right side of the trade, so to speak. So it it goes back to tried and true, more so now than at any point in this bull market so far. I think 
especially around things like diversification. Um, incredibly important right now that you sort of spread assets across multiple asset classes, not put the eggs all in one basket, um, again, especially at this point in the cycle. So uh, th- these, are, these are kind of, you know, investing tips 101, but sometimes not only should you go back to basics, you should stay at the basics most of the time. I think investors who maintain that discipline are generally much more successful than the ones who are trying to time things uh, shorter term. Yes. And another basic is just start as soon as you can. The earlier, the better. The one thing I hear often from people who are later stage in life, you know, what I wish I had done more in my 20s was just put some money in the stock market because you think you have to be rich to invest, but no, but you have to invest to be rich or wealthy. Exactly. And, And there are so many more opportunities for younger, less wealthy investors right now, we really have, and we, I mean the collective industry, have really democratized investing for for everybody. So you you can take a broadly diversified approach. You can approach investing like foundations do and endowments do um, without a lot of money. There are so many ways and programs and and services that allow investors to do that at a much younger point in time. Even just the simplicity of of 401k plans. When I started in the business in the mid-1980s, there was no such thing. So for me, I had to make the decision to open an IRA. I had to figure it out myself and figure out how to invest in it. Whereas, uh, you know, companies that have 401ks, there's a lot of services and information and education that comes with it. And, uh, you know, too many people People opt not to avail themselves of that. Um, So that's kind of the low-hanging fruit that I think just about anybody should take advantage of. Lizanne Saunders, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to connect with you finally after all these years of being a a big fan. Oh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks again to Lizanne and Schwab. If you'd like to follow Lizanne's commentary online, you can, of course, go to charlesschwab.com as well as Twitter. Join her over 50,000 followers on Twitter at Lizanne Saunders. If you missed any of this, don't worry. We've got all of it at somoneypodcast.com where you can download the transcript as well as the audio. And if you have a question for Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh, you can click on Ask Farnoosh there and send me your question. Also leave a voicemail. And of course, of course, of course, join me on Instagram where I'm doing a lot of fun stories and answering your questions on the go at Farnoosh Tarabi. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And I hope your day is so money.